Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> well, welcome back, everyone. This is episode seven. It's moving into winter time. The nights are drawing in, but the stories stay interesting. Yeah. Stephen Clark, what have you got for us this week? Well, now, last time, I think, if I remember correctly, having completely failed to get a proper job in forestry in England, I trailed my uh, experiences getting a job overseas in Africa. And that's what I want to tell you about today because uh, my success was to land a job with voluntary services overseas, uh, which I didn't know much about, uh, but they recruited uh, people to go overseas and work in projects around the developing world. Now, we will have listeners to this podcast, I'm guessing, and they will split in the way they view this kind of um, activity. There will be people who admire what I did and think it's a wonderful um, bit of self-sacrifice to go and work in a foreign country for two years for very little pay. And there'll be others who will think it's a terrible example of white entitlement going to uh, try and help the natives. And we'll probably have listeners on the sort of spectrum between those two. And there's a school of thought, actually, which says that everybody who goes overseas in that sort of context can never do any good. They can only do harm. And I do have a sort of a sympathy with that. But all I know is it's what I did and it totally changed me, I think, for the better. So whatever harm or good Mm. I did, um, I was never the same again after it. And I ended up going to Gatwick Airport. My dad took me. Uh, This would be 1981 when I was 22 and uh, taking a flight on Zambia Airways, which uh, no longer exists. It should definitely be called Zambia Airways. Just, <laughs> m- just mould those two <laughs> words together, definitely. If there's an opportunity to do a word merge, or a wordge, as it is fondly called... A word. I think it should be taken. Always. Yes. I love a word. Zambia Airways. Yeah, well, that's what it was, and that's what... And uh, I hadn't really... I'd flown once before, but uh, this was a long-haul flight, and I knew about check-in, but the most... I mean, the, the excitement of my adventures started at check-in, actually, because uh, Zambia Airways along with lots of other airlines, were very key, very um, keen to make sure they didn't put on too much fuel on the aircraft. Because if you have too much fuel, you use more fuel carrying that fuel that you don't need to carry. Mm. So they do all their calculations very carefully. And they were so careful about their calculations that not only did they weigh the luggage, but they weighed the passengers as well. No, did they? It's hilarious. So when you got to check in... You know that sort of thing where you put your case that's quite narrow, um, that you put your case between mm-hmm. two bits and it weighs it? They got us to stand in between those two sides on on the thing. And the thing was, the woman in front of me, um, she, she just wasn't small and couldn't really fit in between those two things. So she sort of had to hop on one leg to, to be weighed. Terrible, terrible sort of thing. But anyway, that's what they mm. did. And uh, I had been promised a motorbike when I got there for travel around the place. So... I was told that, in fact, in our briefing for, for VSO, we had a lot of um, safety briefings about the things that were likely to harm us, you know, illness, um, disease. But they said the most likely thing to kill you if you're overseas is riding a motorbike. 
um, because a lot of volunteers had a motorbike. So we were given sort of training and um, advice on that. But crucially, I was given a crash helmet to take with me. Now, you probably imagine a crash helmet doesn't fit very easily into a suitcase. So I I had this and I was carrying it hand luggage. So as I went up onto the aeroplane... somebody in the first row of the, of the plane as I got on said oh my goodness you must be nervous of fly, flying because <laughs> I, <laughs> I was carrying a crash helmet but um as if a crash helmet is gonna do anything I know I know um it but it funny. was funny so I took the flight so they so just to clarify they, they were making you hop onto the luggage way rather than giving you like a human exactly scales, and and some like people did the the conveyor belt yes thing. and some people didn't fit on it so it was all very humiliating yeah, actually because of course if you were large that was even worse because you were then heavy which was then displayed on the screen that shows everybody what your case yeah, that's, case that's was awful. so that was an interesting i mean that would never happen now thankfully um but uh so we went to lusaka which is the capital of zambia and uh the first thing we had was a briefing by the British Embassy. Now, I'd never been to a British Embassy before. I've since had quite a bit to do with different British Embassies. But they are a weird thing, British Embassies, I tell you. They're sort of like a another planet, another life, another existence that is unreal. But I was very naive and young and excited. And we had a briefing from the ambassador to which he invited us to dinner one evening. And this was a very sort of spangly affair with a beautiful table with damask tablecloths and I think there were even candlesticks and things but I mean what really strikes a chord if I trawl in my memory um, a horrible chord actually is the servants who were on hand to wait on us um so who were local Zambians so the ambassador when we'd finished our suit would ring a bell and somebody would float in and disappear with our plates and I mean I was just kind of like oh my word this is interesting I didn't at that time have any sense that this was terrible or out of place or in or unequal or imbalanced which of course now with later years and experience um I do but anyway that was my first experience and he told us the ambassador that slightly unnervingly that Zambia wasn't a particularly safe place or particularly the part that I was going to and he said, but don't worry, he said, just um, just keep your head down for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and you'll, you'll get a feel for what, what's what's a safe thing to do and what isn't. Which to this day mm. sort of strikes me as poor advice, basically. Mm. <laughs> but I mean... Was was the ambassador a, a Zambian? Or was... No, no, the whole sort of... In those days, the whole uh, diplomatic team would have been white British people come in from from the UK mm. uh, that isn't the case so much now but um but anyway I got on my uh bus and went off to the part of Zambia where I was going to work which is called the Copper Belt and it's called it's up in the north and it's called the Copper Belt because Zambia's one of Zambia's main exports was copper so all the a lot of the electrical cable that we use in our houses has copper in it that comes from Zambia or a country like Zambia and uh, there were a lot of copper mines that um, needed uh, wood to support the mining tunnels that were cut to to mine the copper and bear in mm. mind I was doing a forestry degree so this copper belt in the north as it was called was had a lot of forests to to supply the mines and uh, so that up there there was a, a training college and also a training outpost 
to which I was sent. And this was called Chatty Forest Station, where you could chit chat and chatty, have a very chatty time if you fancied it. <laughs> Waiting for the train to turn up that is probably very rare. Exactly. <laughs> guess. Yes, no, it wasn't a station as in a train. It was just like a station as in a forest station. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I see, where's the train come from? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah why, why there is there a train here? <laughs> I, do, I, hear, I hear the word station, think of train. No, it was a sort of... I mean, that's not unreasonable. Not at all. Mm. And I think it's Thank a, you, a terminant. I think it's a sort of... Um, what is the word? Anachronism, sort of out of date term anyway, a forest station. But it, anyway, that's where it was. And it was it was about 50... An- anachronism. And I, well, I was trying to... What's the word? Word. Ana- you were trying to word. Words, that's the word. You were trying, trying to word. Ana- it was anachronism. I think the word is anachronism. So if you're saying it is... An- anachronism. An- anachronism. Not if you're worging. Ana- definitely an- not if you're an- worging. Anachronism. But if you're worging, it's just... Yeah. It is an... an- oh, my gosh. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> we'll, we'll, lose it, we'll lose it in the edit. It's fine. So uh, this little place was very small, remote, about 50 kilometres from the nearest town. And uh, I was taken there by a VSO Land Rover I think I said a bus earlier but that was wrong I went in a Land Rover because the the Land Rover dropped me off at this place they introduced me to the principal of this uh, outpost which had students that I was going to supposedly allegedly teach or train and he was Mr Mayamba the head of that lovely man with a beaming smile and uh, I was introduced to him took about five minutes and then the VSO uh, field Can you just ops... quickly clarify what VSO stands for? It's Voluntary Service Overseas is what that means, yeah. So, so it's not specifically an organisation, is it a general term for anyone who's doing no, something No, it is, like it is, is an, an organisation. Actual... It's, a, it's a UK government, right. government-funded organisation. It's, it's part of the UK aid budget, in fact. Um, and mm. I mean, it's very different now, I would say, but in those days... They tended to send young, inexperienced people um, to places probably where they didn't have enough experience. Or um, I think we touched on this last time. But anyway, I I landed there as I was. And um, Mr. Mayamba was very pleased to see me. But I just remember the Land Rover going off in a cloud of dust and feeling completely alone. I just felt as if Mm. I was totally alone, which, of course, was nonsense, as I later came to learn, because I was surrounded by people. They were just people who didn't look like me or feel like me. Um, but I felt very alone at that point. And Mr. Myamba said they'd got a house ready for me, which was a sort of standard staff house, little concrete house, bungalow, um, very adequate. Not really furnished, I have to say. I had a bed and a cupboard, I think, but um, that was about all. Oh, it's luxury, bed and a cupboard. Yeah, in my <laughs> day, only had a cardboard box. <laughs> and I had a... I had a um, a cooker as well, which is important because he promised to send me some lunch and I imagined this would come ready to eat. But in fact, it turned up about an hour later in the form of a, a young lad who, with eyes wide with terror, uh, knocked on my door and threw into the hallway a bunch of onions, which he was holding in one hand, and a live chicken, which he was holding in the <gasps> other and oh, no. fled. Oh, no. He ran. He just ran. He was absolutely terrified of this new arrival in the thing. Onions oh. and a chicken. That was my lunch. <sighs> so what did you do? Well, in our had an onion and gave the other onion to the other chicken, <laughs> didn't you? And you lived happily ever after. <laughs> okay, that's the end of the podcast, folks. <laughs> Nothing to hear. <laughs> I will skate over the story, but I mean, let's suffice to say that part of our VSO training had included a way of killing a chicken if you ever had to, which. 
I don't want to go into details, but I couldn't bring myself to do that in that particular way. But there was another method available to me. Um, and well, I just, let me just say, it took me five hours, but I did in the end have a chicken supper with onion sauce. Um, but mm. that was a sort of a quite a baptism of fire, really, for a... Yeah. So was that, that, that was the same day you had arrived and you were feeling all It was about an hour was, after I'd arrived, was, yes. Yeah. And, uh, wow. Gosh, it was such a... Sort of in, I mean, maybe in a way, traumatic experience to have to suddenly be like... I think, I think yeah. looking back on it, it was, it was traumatic at the time, but not terribly. I mean, I, I, I've mm. dined out on that story for years. So, <laughs> um, but, yeah. uh, and in fact, Rosemary, my sister, uh, who was commuting to London at the time from, from Surrey, um, she had her place in the carriage on the train to Waterloo Station, where usually there was a, the same people in the same seats in the same carriage each morning on the same train. And um, she used to regale them with my exploits. And I think that particular story went up and down the line from Waterloo to, to Portsmouth. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, in fact, when I got back two years later, people used to say to me, oh, are you the person who ate the chicken that was sent in? And that was blah, 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 which is quite funny. <laughs> I, I settled in quite quickly, but the problem was there was absolutely nothing for me to do. Not a single thing that I could usefully do. And the project... Did, had, did you, had you been sent there with like a specific task or anything or it was it just help as was needed it it the project hadn't been it was poorly vetted shall we say so mr myamba had requested a volunteer and i know why he requested a volunteer and it's because um he was a shrewd man and somebody from outside usually brings some resources with them like a motorbike for example that could be used or borrowed um quite often um a bit of funding and uh, but he didn't have a plan. And the problem was the students didn't speak English or the training was not in, speak- in English. So the training was in, in Chibemba, which was the language of that part of Zambia. Zambia, I think, had 76 languages, would you believe, in wow. one country. Um, and I did learn some Chibemba. And I, when I left two years later, I gave my farewell speech in Chibemba. And I, huh. I can still remember the opening paragraph which if anyone is listening who knows this they will roar with laughter but it went something along the lines of kutina temba ukulondapo utomashiwi utunombo kabalipano something like that and that is supposed to mean well thank you all for coming and I'm very sorry to be leaving you or something along those lines (laughs) but I, I don't know what it means now but it's still so that was like that was like forty years ago, and you've still got it. In it's what is so mad, cool. isn't it? But uh, yeah. anyway, so um, they taught in that language, and I, of course, didn't know any of it. So uh, there was I was worse than useless, and it took I think <laughs> oh, Steve. I think it, <laughs> it, it, it took two months of pleading and begging, but eventually VSO transferred me. So in the Copper Belt of Zambia, there are two towns called Kitwe and Ndola, which are the main towns of that part. And in between them, uh, they built a dual carriageway, which was the first dual carriageway in Zambia. It was brand new when I arrived. And uh, halfway down that dual carriageway between those two towns was the National Forestry College, um, where they taught in English. So I was I was posted there. And uh, there I did have a role because uh, they needed a teacher to do science and the forest harvesting, as it was called, which was chainsaw work, which I'd had a bit of experience of. 
So um, that's where I went. When I arrived in Mokera, I did eventually get my, my motorbike. That was a tremendous asset because uh, occasionally I used to be able to go into the town and do some shopping. And sometimes commodities were in quite short supply. And I can remember that butter and honey particularly, uh, well, butter was the thing that was hardly ever there, but occasionally it would come to the shops and you'd, a rumour would go around there was butter. And I'd jump on my mm. motorbike. A bit like the uh, current petrol shortages. Completely. Oh, topical. You know. <laughs> and what happens? You chase after the thing that you haven't got. So I went, mm. used yeah. to go into the shops and, and buy a pound of butter and come back. And I was perfectly capable of working my way through almost half a pound of butter with honey. And if I had a loaf of bread, it was like a real comfort eating thing that I did to sort of stave off the homesickness and the kind of feelings of being isolated and all that sort of stuff. I can... Just remember, I just slice after slice of butter and honey. It was, mm. and I can, it was so good. <laughs> mm. So had you ridden a motorbike before then, or was it? Was that I had a moped when I was 16, so I, I, I had ridden a motorbike mm. before. It was, a, it was an off-road bike. Was, I mean, it was a small thing, but it was, it was suitable for the tracks and, and forest trails mm. that we had. So I found myself head of a science department. I said head of a science department of one person, and uh, <laughs> so I had a laboratory that I was supposed to uh, run and uh, I had classes that I was to take on each day. And the first class, I mean, I've got to tell you that I, bear in mind, I hadn't been trained as a teacher. And um, so I stood up in front of this group and I had a sort of curriculum and I thought of, I, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So I... I said something and obviously nobody understood what I said. So I was talking too fast. I was using vocabulary that was unfamiliar. They didn't know my voice. They weren't, didn't know who I was. So everybody was looking at the ground. So I carried on for a bit. Eventually I thought, well, I probably ought to ask a question to see if anybody knows anything or has understood anything. So I sort of confidently asked a question to the group, studying their feet with intensity as if their shoes were really <laughs> needing to be cleaned or something. So then I thought, what do I do now? So I invented, it dawned on me. I could ask one individual. I could say, oh, mm. um, John, what do you think the maintenance of a chainsaw is? And um, John looks up in absolute terror. And he says to me, sir, I can't get you. But I didn't know what he meant when he said, I can't get you. What he meant was, I don't understand what you're saying. So there then followed this classic lack of conver- lack of understanding, lack of communication where really it was just terribly embarrassing for all of us. But eventually, learning the hard way, um, the the class and I got to know each other and how we spoke and, you know, the way we behaved and, and we sort of settled down to a routine. I do find it amazing how it, when you ask a group a question... Mm. absolutely nobody will answer. Yeah, happens all the time 100%. when I'm in a workshop. You ask, you ask general questions and no one answers. But as soon as you say a name to it, then it is, it's absolutely the way mm. in because otherwise everyone can bask under the kind of an anonymity of a group. But can you, can you remember yeah. how you learnt that, Jay? Um, just dawned on you one day, maybe. I, I can't remember, but I guess similarly to you, just, mm. just finding that when you ask a question to, to a group, no one answers. And as soon mm. as you put a name to it, then even if they don't know what the answer is, it at least starts a conversation and then you know and it's the same thing of like the Hermione complex of like a class if there's a classroom with one person who's like willing to speak out then they will always ask the question so then you kind of have to end up asking individuals so that it's not always the same person yeah 
answering yeah. stuff. I, I feel as if I so. learned all of these lessons very slowly. Um, and, mm. and I, you know, this was, this was part of my change of character, if, I'm ever, if, I, if I did change my character. You know, I was, I was still pretty shy, pretty, you know, uninformed and timid. So this was a very uncomfortable situation for me. But the, the thing is, if you could have pushed a button that made you straight back home, I'd have definitely have pushed it in those first two or three months. But the stakes were a bit too high for that. You know, it's like, it's not that easy. And there's a loss of face and all, you know, and my family and, you know, all the people back home were saying, oh, what a wonderful job I'm doing and all the rest of it. So, mm -hmm. but it's interesting because VSO recruited five people who came on the same plane to me, with me, to Zambia. And only two of us lasted the two years, which perhaps says something about recruitment process. Was it a set two-year contract? It was, yeah. That was the standard, mm -hmm. standard mm. thing. And you weren't supposed to come back in the middle, but thereby hangs a tail, which is coming in a second. So, <gasps> oh. so um, I managed to uh, teach this curriculum and, you know, they had exams uh, at the end of, end of the term. And I, what I realised was that they were moving towards, uh, there were two sort of levels of qualification, of a forest officer and a forest ranger. And um, I realised that what they could really do with was an external qualification if, you know, they were going to have opportunities in the future for sort of growth and development. And I realised I'd had that chance to do O-levels and A-levels, but they, they really didn't. So it dawned on me that perhaps I could do some evening classes in maths and English, which are the sort of building blocks of, of knowledge. So I looked into to this and discovered, I wrote to my biology teacher from my secondary school and said, you know, what do you think? And because she was she was absolutely great, Miss Forrest. I had a massive amount of respect for her. Miss Forrest, Forrest. teaching forestry. Ah, I've never made that link before. Have you not? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's no. No, she well, no, she was a biology teacher, so she didn't teach forestry, oh. but she oh. helped you when yes. you were teaching that forestry. Is... So, but what made you reach out? Is it just because she was a nice? Teacher? She was somebody who who wasn't couldn't put herself on another plane and sort of unreachable and kind of uh she was a human being in the teaching profession if you know what I mean mm. and she took a real interest in her students so of course she wrote back and sent me the curriculum for the Oxford and Cambridge um O-level board I think and I wrote to them and got the, got what they had and then I started a I started a course in the evenings and and these guys turned up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, after having had their supper, ready to learn because they knew it was a chance and it was the most rewarding thing and and perhaps help, which helped me most shift from kind of ineptitude and misery to sort of thinking, well, maybe I could do something here and uh, and I'll stick with it. But so, but mm. at the beginning, I mean, the, the knowledge base was very, very low. So I remember we had a maths problem that was a sort of calculation of volume and we talked about how you calculate volume. Um, and I put a real question to them. This was a, an order. We had a sawmill attached to the college. And we used to cut, cut um, uh, wood for people commercially to fund the college activities. So I said, this is a real order that's come from a customer in the sawmill. And they want uh, this many planks of this width and this length and this depth and this many planks of this what's the total volume so that we can calculate the cost you see and the the results came through sort of from 0 0.000000 meters cubed to 100 million meters cubed you know and so <laughs> but therein again we sort of learned each other's sort of approach to things and, and between us we worked out that a good question to ask is 
does this seem as if it could be right? You know, have I got the decimal point in the right place? Da 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 da. Anyway, mm. so we eventually went through that and we did some English uh, literature and language. Then, of course, but just before I left, um, there was the thing about sitting the exams, and I was able to to register the college that I lived worked in as a as an examination centre. Which I'm, I mean, looking back on it, I'm still amazed today, and I can only think that things were much easier then in terms of you know hoops to jump through. So it became a, an official testing centre for the for the for the O level exam, and my students sat with an invigilator who came up from Lusaka, um, maths and English uh, exams, and then I left because I'd come to the end of my contract, and there was a a sort of a uh, administrative uh, or political spat really that meant that the exam board wouldn't release the results of students until a certain bill had been paid centrally and it wasn't paid and so there were, even the students didn't know how they'd done and you know what it's like really? waiting for exam results it's like kind of yeah, your yeah. but I mean it's it's very shocking but eventually they did release them and I'd heard it was like they should have had them in August and it was Christmas before they released but so by then I was back in the UK and I discovered that the headquarters of this examination board were in London so I went up to London and I knocked on this door and it's like it a weird, weird experience, like it was from Dickens. You went through this door and it was a old sort of three-storey tenement block and you went up these stairs and pull pa- the wallpaper was literally peeling off the walls. The banisters were rickety, you know, the lights were almost flickering. It was, it was just weird and I thought, this is so odd. And I got to the top and opened the door and there was this like office of people all sitting at desks doing things <laughs> I was thinking what and, he, and anyway I talked to the receptionist and they said oh I'm very sorry Mr Scott you've had a wasted journey because we only ever re- release um, exam results to students who've sat the exam on production of a passport with their name and ID that matches the details we've got so anyway I was so distraught anyway I sort of did my three Oscar performance I tried charm I tried hysteria I tried begging I tried crying <laughs> and eventually somebody was called who said okay I think we can make an exception <laughs> in this case because I said I, you know I've given my life two years in, in, in the other side of the world and I, anyway he, he literally went along the shelf a to Z and found a big file for Zambia opened it up leafed through it and found the the Mukera, which was the college where I've been teaching, and there it was. Leafstra opened it up and he looked at it and he said, I don't think you're going to be very pleased with these, uh, Mr. Clark. And um, uh, he then showed them to me, and I was absolutely over the moon. <laughs> I couldn't believe it because his, his standard of sort of success and mine were completely different. Mm. So mm. I, think, I think everybody had passed both exams number one so in those days it was a b c d and e with the grades and everybody had got at least a c um and most people had got c's but there were a few b's and a couple of a's so i mean i just the whole thing was was um it was yeah it was just so exciting to see that those guys had actually put in all that work and all that effort to pull themselves from saying you know this order is a million cubic meters to getting a, a C or a B or an A in a, in a maths exam. So that was yeah. very exciting. After I left, a lot of those students used to write to me and they always said the same thing and they had the same format. And it was, Mr. Clark, since you left, the sun hasn't risen in the sky. There's been nothing but <laughs> the birds have stopped singing. 
Our fam, everybody's oh. crying. Da, 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 da. That was the first paragraph. And, but wait for it. The second paragraph was, could you please send me a camera? And uh, could I have a, um, a, a hundred, yeah, hundred pounds? Yeah. And, blah, blah, blah. and you can sort of understand the whole thing. But I mean, I, we were very fond of each other and very attached to each other. And uh, I, I sort of attribute a lot of the teaching that I've done since to their sort of patience and tolerance with my my ineptitude and learning in the early days. Mm. (laughs) Um, But this laboratory um, that I was telling you about uh, had a sort of dissection facilities and I got very interested in snakes while I was out there because they have some amazing snakes in Zambia. Um, Very, very dangerous snakes. They have a, a thing called a gaboon viper and a puff adder, both of which are can be fatal to human beings and often are. And the, the gaboon, because snakes have two types of venom, uh, they usually have either a, a venom that affects the blood or a venom that affects your nervous system. And the gaboon viper has both, yeah. so it's particularly malicious. Um, and the puff adder, um, when it's scared, it sort of puffs itself up and looks much bigger. It sort of inflates itself. Very incredibly clever. Uh, and from time to time, these snakes would be um, caught sort of terrorising people. Or um, There was one that was um, in a chicken house and it had, it had been caught. And because I was interested in snakes, they used to bring them to me when they were dead, these snakes. And of course, when they're dead, there's nothing that can be done. So I used to, to open them up and have a look inside. And, and this one that was caught in the chicken yeah. house, I found three little chicks inside it. I mean, it just swallowed them. <gasps> And uh, they were Al- like, alive. They weren't alive anymore, but they looked mm. as if they could oh. have been. And I was just a bit yeah. too late, really. Um, then I bought a puff. They bought me a puff adder, which is a beautiful skin. And it came at a time when I was eating my supper, and they brought it to the door of my house. And so I put it in the bath. It was dead, but I put it in the bath because it was sort of out of the way there. And would you believe when I was tucking into my supper, I had a visit from another school teacher. Um, with her daughter who was about seven I think and so they were sitting we had a cup of tea and we were discussing this that and the other and the seven year old who quite reasonably was very bored with the proceedings (laughs) asked if she could go to the loo (gasps) oh no did she did she so she went I'd forgotten about the snake so (laughs) it's like a scene from a fast film it's like (laughs) off she went into the bathroom and out she came from the bathroom at 100 miles an hour and didn't stop to say anything just went out the front door and went home (laughs) poor poor, poor thing i had no idea that you were interested in dissecting animals yeah me neither so funny well it was only because i just found snakes so fascinating um they're really yeah i can't i don't know really anything about how their anatomy works like well it's wild i can i can sort of know yeah know what well, you mean a, about. a mamba snake can can travel faster than a horse can gallop and i mean if you think of that that's just unimaginable mm, yeah, how, yeah how, how is that possible <laughs> but anyway you're not you're not going to escape from it by running that's for sure kind of thing so but i mean yeah. mostly snakes have more scared of us than we are of them so they they run away if they get you know it's only when they're trapped that they yeah. they sort of attack the the tactic if you're in snake country is to sort of make a reasonable amount of noise when you're walking in an area that and mm. then they just go in the other direction sort of thing and the mistake mm. is to go quietly really um because then you can surprise them or tread on them which is the other thing that people do um the mistake is to tread on them <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> it goes it goes for everybody everything actually it's a big mistake to tread Life on lessons it. with shti <laughs> lego bricks
for sure. Ow! Yeah. yeah. Plugs. Ooh. Yeah. Bad. Pins. Look, this is hurting. What do you think the worst thing to step on is? I think a plug. No, I think you've hit oh, on it. A, a plug. plug is, yeah. Yeah. It's pronged. Oh. Actually, no, I think a member stake might be worse. But a plug is pretty bad. Well, I've never, never had this experience, but a friend of mine has. It was just stepping on a scorpion, and that is really very painful, Ooh. I think. Yeah, very painful. Yeah, no, thank you. No, thank you. What about rocks on a beach, though? Because they can be quite painful. Oh, Rocks on a beach? You know, like when you go to a, a beach and there's a rocky bit and you have to walk over it, and it's, and it's like, oh, I just want to be on the soft sand, but actually it's a bit rocky. Well, well, yeah, that sounds like a minor inconvenience. Like, just <laughs> no, I, I'm with you on that, because if, if, if you suddenly find a spiky one that you don't know is there, and you go, oh, yeah, yeah no, I'm... I'm yeah, yeah, pa- yeah, painful. I'm feeling yeah. uncomfortable with all of this. Okay, what's the nicest thing to step on? Should we end on a, a sponge? <laughs> oh, I don't want to step a on duvet. a sponge. Like some, the floor. Like, just, uh, the, just the floor. A carpet, maybe a thick carpet. It's quite cool. A thick carpet. Mm. Okay, there we go. Positive spin. Mm. So, um, the other thing that I did in my house was the hot water heater was n- always breaking down. And although it's hot in Zambia, it can, the, can be quite cold at nights. And um, so I had this idea to build a solar, a solar shower. And I designed it and it was going to be, because um, I sort of operated the sawmill, I could cut some wood for it. So I was going to put four big pillars in each corner and then make a wooden tank of, of planks on top of these four pillars and then line it with plastic and fill it with water and just have a little vacuum um, siphon thing over the edge that would come to a spray head. So a very simple technology. And then it would heat up during the day in the sun and I could have a warm shower in the night. But I have to tell you that is I got as far as putting the pillars in the ground and then life kind of took over because I got very busy and they might still be there as a tribute to my stupidity in the, in the garden of the house that I lived in. So yeah, I've never got any part. And then everyone would say, oh yeah, that was the British chap who came and that's his solar shower. And they said, we, ne- we never understood how it was going to work. <laughs> but but uh, solar showers weren't a thing in those days. So it was, a, it was kind of like an mm, e- experimental uh, thing. And then um, I had quite a few friends amongst the other VSOs in Zambia. We used to get together for conferences from time to time. But after my first year, something happened that was very dramatic. But I got a letter from my brother, David, whom you both know. And he wrote this letter. And uh, I wish I'd thought to get it out. Anyway, he said, it said something like, Dear Stevie, which is what they call me. Um, How's everything going out there? Um, Nappies. Uh, everything's going on okay um, dummy anyway he was telling me that Fiona's <laughs> pregnant oh so, okay so anyway I learned that uh, my sister-in-law Fiona is pregnant with the first child of that generation who we now know is Naomi Nay. Mm. cousin Nay. so she was born more or less at the end of my first year i.e. halfway through my time with VSO in Zambia and I just thought, I can't, I can't miss this. I, this is not missable. Yeah. But you weren't really supposed to come back in the middle of your term. It was quite frowned on. Plus, you know, there wasn't any money for it. So I had to scheme and wheel and deal to try and get myself two weeks holiday to come back to, um, to, to England just to meet Naomi, which I did. And uh, yeah. I, to, in order to fund the airfare, I took orders from people in Zambia for items that they wanted they couldn't buy locally 
and one of them wanted a MIDI hi-fi system um, which consisted of a sort of cassette player and radio uh, no turntable actually but just those two and then two speakers um, which I think I could buy for like £90 or something in England and was worth like 150 in Zambia so he paid me mm. the equivalent of the Zambia money a bit less and I bought it anyway the long the short mm. it was I carried that system back hand luggage would you believe on the airplane putting, <laughs> putting speakers in different cabinets and the main thing in another one overhead <laughs> but it, I got back and uh, was able to put Naomi in a little pouch on my front and walk up and down the, the, the beach and thinking, oh, how, wow. thinking how cool everything was. It was so amazing. And I, I, don't ever yeah. re- I don't ever regret it. But one of the things that came out of it was when I got back, I was absolutely skint and broke because I'd sort of mortgaged everything that I ever had and sort of future allowances. Uh, I didn't have any money. But this turned mm. out to be a very good thing because it meant that I started eating the food, the local food, which is called Inshima, which I have treated you to mm. at certain times. Is this in the, the, yes. the polenta dish? This is the polenta dish, yeah. Oh, I love, I love this dish. So, it went, I mean, their staple food in Zambia was a, a maize meal cake, which um, sometimes they have for breakfast and dinner and tea. And they'd make a central portion that you put in the table and everybody would sit around and using their hands would grab a scoop of it in the hand and, and mould it, push a hole in it with their thumb and then use that hole to, to, to scoop up some, some juice from a sauce that would be chilies and onions and tomatoes and so on. And I can tell you, as you may know, if you eat it with a knife and fork, it just doesn't taste the same as if you, <laughs> as if you share it. And so because I became used to eating that food, I got to know the, the local staff and people in the village and that was what changed my whole outlook from feeling totally alone, which I clearly wasn't, to feeling surrounded by people who I realised could be and became very close friends and confidants and mentors and um, advisors mm. and just a whole new community that mm. was was completely un- inaccessible to me because I had drawn myself barriers between me and them. And it was food which was the lack of money mm. that broke all of those down. It's very interesting, really, when you think so, about it. So what mm. were you eating before? Oh, I would go into the town and buying butter and um, uh, cornflakes and bread and yeah, you know, okay. eggs. and the... love, a, mm. love a basket of buttered cornflakes. <laughs> 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 but the stand, standard sort of fare for our, for our background and culture, I suppose. And how did you... How did you get introduced then to the food when you had no money did you did you approach someone and say you know can I eat with you or how, how did no I, I bought a sack of the maize meal and asked somebody to teach me how to cook it um, yeah oh, which nice. which I I now do you know as you know from time to time now um but what I've realized is that the polenta that we buy here is actually part cooked which I never realized before so if I use the method that I use in Zambia, it, it you know it cooks very quickly, much quicker than mm. we used to. I used to have to cook it for perhaps twenty minutes um, at least, whereas it it cooks much more quickly. The stuff we buy in the shops it's here. a bit like couscous almost, where it's like you just need to put some hot water with it. It is, and then yeah. It's like, oh, there we go. Red. Mm. But but I mean, the process of cooking it is very exciting because you 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 pour it into <laughs> the water and it all bubbles like a cauldron of of exciting sort of I don't know what and you have to stir it all like this and then at the very end you put a little bit of dry stuff in to to thicken it all up 
and um, so so I used to used to cook that and and have people around and share it, and it 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 changed. And you know, even now, it it has changed fundamentally the way I view people who are different from me. I think I still got a long way to go, but it was a very funny sort of sequence of events. I did something I wasn't supposed to, which was come back to see Naomi, and that caused me to not have any money, which caused me to change my diet, which caused me to mm. to, to get to know people. So it's a very interesting lesson in life. Mm. Yeah, it's funny the kind of it's not it's not necessarily an easy thing to just keep open minded all the time, but it is it is definitely the way forward. It, absolutely, and mm. and I mean all I can say is that I was very closed mind. I know I was, and uh, you know there's always room for improvement uh, because we naturally tend to be and want to be with people who are like us unless we're forced into something else. And that can be extremely mm. sort of fulfilling and, and develop us as people, I think. I think it's hard when you're when you're young though. It's so so hard to think outside of your own box when you're like that kind of early twenties age. Mm. I think yeah, I didn't feel like I necessarily branched out of it until more recently just because <laughs> I think leave that one in. See, yeah, not happy. That's, that's that's the end of my sentence. There you go. The cat just <laughs> But I think I it is. I think it's also word. part of it's part of growing up as well, though, because I think you know that step from growing up, it, you know, with with parents sort of showing you what to do and sort of generally being there for for you know as you kind of work out what the world is, yeah. and then that bit which is early twenties, which is where you're like, okay, now I'm trying to do this for myself. What does this mean? And then it feels like then that then that next step is is being, I guess, not necessarily more comfortable in yourself, although I think that's part of it allows you then to be like okay so what's what's the rest of the world got got going on and I mean one advantage now is that we we know much more about the world so I was totally shocked when I got to Zambia and found how poor people were I'd had no idea you know and in a way Mm. that's what drove me to my sort of later decisions about what I did in life but I, I thought you know I thought why is nobody doing anything about this because I didn't know I'd had a good education, but I was so shocked. But now at least we have a bit more access to to global news stories through kind of um, 24-7 news and so on. Yeah. So one thing I was wondering about was um, you talk about VSO being voluntary services overseas. Yes. What, when you say voluntary, what, does that mean you weren't getting paid at all? Or, no, it's or... interesting because it means different things to different people. Um Fundamentally, it means that you volunteer to do something that you most people don't want to do or and is not a normal thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, you can have volunteers in programmes that are paid fat salaries. That's true. And they still think of themselves as volunteers. But to me, a volunteer is somebody who's who's actually not being paid properly or is sacrificed something to do it. That's That's been my kind of definition of the word. So the what we had was actually a, quite a lot of money really we we had our tickets paid to go out there and come back again uh, we had a monthly allowance which allowed us to to eat and and you know and buy drinks and go out occasionally um and we had sort of medical cover if we were ill so in a way we were very cushioned but we weren't paid a salary and didn't save any money and didn't have anything in the bank when we got home um mm. i suppose is, yeah. is the bottom line so some people think that's a very um admirable thing to do what I would say is that I received about 10 times more in other ways than I would have done if I'd had a salary that was commensurate with the job that I was doing um, and you know that 
I have to continue to remind myself that lots of people haven't had that chance, you know, to, to, to travel and to to live in a context that's different from our own, um, which, you know, is is growing and developing as a, as a, as a process. So, yeah. So I don't feel I've never I mean, I if, if somebody says I admire what you do or did, I just say, well, you know, I've done things that you can't pay to do. You can't pay money to do what I've been able to experience and and, mm. and been to places you can't you can't normally go to. I mean, that's later on in the in the podcast series. But um, but Zambia was the platform and the springboard for that. Um, and, that, you know, mm. I felt I brought back um, 10 times more than I ever took mm. there, uh, interestingly enough. Yeah, amazing. And I think that is my story of uh, there's there's at least one more story from Zambia for next time and that is one of my best stories oh oh a good yeah a little cliffhanger for you yeah folks. And that was a good story. that was some very good story so far you've gone so still has he frozen I have not he might have oh done. no <laughs> <laughs> I actually I 100% thought you'd frozen that's so funny <laughs> so you were 20, 21 you were saying 22 I was when I left yeah and 24 when 22. I got back mm. tiny little Tommy what were you doing when you were 22 Oh, when I was 22, I was nearly new. <laughs> I think that was presumably just after university. So I imagine I was freshly in London. Mm. What about you? I was back at uni because I took, cause I took the two gap oh, yeah. years beforehand. I guess I would have been in my second year probably. I don't know. Kind of funny really because a lot of people obviously finished uni at 21 and then, then started their life. Whereas mm. for me, I, I felt like I kind of... Did a bit of adventuring in other ways and then went and then started a bit later on. Yeah. So I was just still I think hanging out. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny how much of life is growth at different points. Because you're like uni was, is like most of uni is not necessarily the subject you're studying. It's more just like, oh, look, I'm on my own. I don't have my parents <laughs> to look after me. What do I do? How do I cook? How do I shop? How do I think about the things I want to do, et cetera, et cetera. But then it's like after uni, you're like, oh, now I don't have a primary objective every day, which is to learn the thing that I've decided mm-hmm. I want to learn. And now I have to do money. So I feel like when I came to London, it was something about that age. And I was at like five jobs. I had no idea what was happening. I was just like flailing around. I mean, I had a wonderful time. I lived in a really great house with two really good people. So it was like very fun. But, you know, it's like that thing of Zamb- like going off to Zambia and doing that is feels like such an extreme thing. But it's all the same. Yeah, it is kind of world of like what's happening like who am i what am i doing yes. well, how do i work this all out which is that's just life in it the whole thing the whole way through you're just what's happening how do i work it out <laughs> i'm still wondering <laughs> at least for me i was laughing the other day because um i was remembering that when i first lived in london um which i think was when i was about 19 and i was struggling with cooking food for one person it just just in terms of obviously it's much easier to cook bigger portions but i didn't really want to eat same just the same thing all the time and I couldn't really work out what to buy to to sort of just make like one person meals and mum sent me a a recipe book that for one like one person cooking I I can't remember exactly what the title was um which was really really lovely except that when I opened it up and looked inside the recipes like one of the recipes was for lobster <laughs> you know it was like it was like seriously fancy cooking and there was me I remember I was trying to I was trying to do my weekly shop on I think it was I was aiming for 15 pounds but it could go up to 20 if I needed to and you're like for for a week's worth of shopping so you're like lobster <laughs> yeah. is not lobster's never gonna be 
<laughs> on the cards. You were like, but as does basic range or something like. Excuse me, where's the where's the lobster here in the in the basics yeah. frozen section of lobster? <laughs> the Waitrose Essentials is where <laughs> yes. you need to be looking. Other supermarkets yeah. are available. <laughs> I just have an unrelated question, mm. if you have time for it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, well, it's unrelated to Zambia, really, but it's sort of related to this thread of conversation, which is, um, do you do you have a conscious memory of sort of preparing me and Tommy for leaving home in terms of knowing how to cook meals and knowing how to do washing and stuff? Because I, I, I can't remember why we were thinking about this, but I was I was trying to think back and I... I couldn't really remember if it was just because some some up people along are so or... unprepared when they get to uni, like don't know how to do oh, washing, yeah, don't people, know how to cook. Yeah. But I didn't feel like I actually had that. But I don't really remember having like training sessions. Yeah, <laughs> we 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 should definitely have Matt's in on that conversation. But I I I can't say that I mm. had any plan other than at some point I twigged that you needed to be as independent as possible and not to be as like me as possible, which was what I thought I was trying to achieve at the, to begin <laughs> with. And but I mean. I've, I've, I, I, I suspect consciously or unconsciously Mutz had a had a strategy which sort of sort of got you to do things um that mm. would help for that. But I, I we didn't talk about that and it wasn't a family mm. plan as such. Do you feel like when you left um Grand and Grandpa's that that you you sort of had Yeah, I did. I, I did, absolutely, to, yeah. And I think you know, I think yeah. my parents were supremely good at kind of well we um we used to have this incentive season in the holidays scheme in the holidays where we got stars for um washing up or sweeping the stairs or and um, mum just made it fun so we we knew we knew how to use a dustpan yeah. and brush and you know it was like mm. when we went around holidays we'd split into pairs by drawing lots so that we'd cook with a brother or a sister or a parent um, you know, each night, different couple of people. And I know Christy, Christy and I in mm. Scotland one day did haggis, which we didn't oh. know anything about at all, but we looked it all up and went and bought it. I mean, we didn't even know where to go to buy it. We didn't know if it was a sort of a grocer's mm. or a butcher's or... And, <laughs> or, or go and look in a tree yeah. outside. <laughs> but I mean, that, you know, that, that was all just great fun. Um, and I think they were very good at that. So, yeah. Well, folks. Excellent. Thanks, Stephen. That was really interesting. It's so nice how... We know the basis, we know the sort of world in which you're going to tell this story because obviously we've heard you say stuff before, but there were so many things in there that I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, and it's nice to have the context of knowing, you know, kind of having come from university and then going straight out and just being... Well, it's, I mean, I, as I've said before, I'm just loving reliving it because, it, 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 you know, a lot of those things I haven't thought about for ages and it's just, it, they were great experiences. So, yeah. Nice to share them with you, Kit, guys. Every time you said Puff Adder... <laughs> For some reason, my head just kept trying to make it into Puff Daddy. <laughs> Puff Daddy. <laughs> when I don't adder. know what I put, Puff Adder. But, but not, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I thought you were going to say Black Adder, but Puff Daddy is another thing. It's a totally other thing. Everybody, if you're listening to this on an app, you can probably like or rate it. So feel free to do that if you like it. Thank you so much. Okay, not going to be annoying any longer. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And see you next time. Good from, good from me. Or goodbye from me. Good from bye. <laughs> Okay, bye. <laughs>